we have felt led of the Lord on this family day to once again share on the theme the truth about divorce and remarriage. It is a vast subject, one that no one could possibly treat in one service like this, and there is no way that anybody could prepare a message that would speak to every different kind of circumstance that surrounds divorce and remarriage. Those have to be handled on an individual basis. But what my endeavor tonight is to share with you what the Bible teaches us on this subject and try to illustrate it for you as best I know how. It is a message of mercy, I believe, and it is a message of grace. But it does have guidelines, and guidelines that we all very much need. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, in other words, these Corinthian believers wrote to Paul about problems that they were having in the local church, the local church being just like this church, with people in it, people with problems, people with concerns, people with needs. So they wrote to him, and now he's writing back, and chapter by chapter he unfolds the answer to their questions. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. That's God's divine order. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Down to verse 8. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The next section deals with the marriage vows. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife, but to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. Let me pause a moment there just to underscore what Paul is saying. It's not a part of my message tonight, so I, I want to just put a line underneath it. If you are married to an unbeliever, the instruction of the apostle is stay in that marriage. The presence of a believer in that marriage sanctifies the, unmar or the married unbeliever. The presence of a believer in that home 
sanctifies that home. And that's incredible when you stop to think about it. You have great power and you have great influence in that marriage situation, even though the companion may be an unbeliever. The unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Now, let's go down a little bit farther. In the message in a few moments, I will talk about some of the conditions that prevailed during the time that this passage was written. I just want you to notice in verse 21 the word slave. Were you called while a slave? That's part of the conditions that we will underline as we move along. Down to verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. And on down to verse 34. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of her youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is according to my judgment, and I think I also have the spirit of God. So ends the writing of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians in chapter 7, the entire chapter devoted to this subject of relationships. A minister wrote to me, and I quote, This whole area of divorce and remarriage is a deep concern to me. Our churches are full of the problem. We are attempting through teaching preaching and counseling to prevent and correct problems in these areas. As I see it, the church at large must face the issue with less legalism and more honest concern with straight, compassionate answers. We must take people from where they are 
and quit reminding them by legal document that there are past areas we won't forget. End of his quote. He, with others, have contacted us in regard to what the Bible really says about divorce and remarriage. The problem is all around us. There is probably not a person here that has not been touched in some way by divorce or remarriage because of family members or close friends. Traditionalized churchianity has been to squeeze out the possibilities of any life recovery in people who have had marital misfortune. I am sad to have to say that, but it is true. Churchianity in tradition has squeezed out the possibility of life recovery. I will endeavor to address this problem from Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. Since what Jesus said about marriage was mostly theological. He did talk about marriage, but it was from a theological perspective. The practical details of marriage, Jesus left to the writers of the epistles, these letters to the churches to correct problems. So Paul takes the basic things that the Lord Jesus said about marriage and makes it practical. He applies it to our time through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. We could actually call chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians an application of the statements of the Lord on marriage. I want you to get that. Paul takes what Jesus said in the Gospels on marriage and applies them to the church of Jesus Christ in this seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians. The first thing, therefore, I deal with is the matter of revelation. Now that Paul is dealing with an actual church situation, namely Corinth, he makes some statements regarding what he is saying and what the Lord said. Some would say that part of chapter 7 is his own opinion rather than divine revelation. That's sort of what the wording indicates, but what is he actually saying? Look at verse 12 again, if you've kept your Bible handy there. This is what Paul said. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. Now, this simply implies that Jesus never said anything about the cases he is using in his references. This is new truth, is what the apostle is stating in that 12th verse. Jesus did not speak to this in a practical sense. So I am giving you new truth. I am not quoting from the Gospels. The Lord did not say this. I'm saying this. But he's saying it under the guidance and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 25. 
I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. Again, Christ had not dealt directly with the subject. He speaks of being faithful as a steward of God's Word, which is the first essential of true ministry. He is saying, I am not fabricating things here. I am not stretching things here. What he's saying is that Christ did not deal directly with this subject. He has left that up to me in this passage of Scripture. Now to verse 40. After my judgment, and I think also that I have the Spirit of God. This is an expression of Paul's personal conviction that he, as a servant of God, is anointed of the Spirit in what he is sharing with the Corinthians. One of the more powerful statements on divine anointing and revelation in the New Testament. After my judgment, and I think also that I have the Spirit of God. In other words, he's putting himself on the same level as the Lord in inspiration. He is saying, Jesus was inspired to say what he said about marriage. I am inspired to say what I am saying on the same subject. I have the same revelation or the same inspiration. It's important to see that. Now, secondly, the matter of problems in Corinth. Concerning the things you wrote to me, from chapter 7, where we read tonight, through chapter 16, Paul is dealing with those things, things that they wrote about. This would be a suitable outline, just for your interest. Marriage problems, chapter 7. Idol problems, chapters 8 through 10. I-D-O-L problems. The Lord's table problem, chapter 11, the communion. The spiritual gifts problem, chapters 12 through 14. The resurrection problem, chapter 15. The collection problem, chapter 16, the offering. So chapter after chapter, he is giving divine truth about the problems that the people of Corinth were experiencing. Our concern tonight is with marriage problems. In the day that Paul lived, Rome recognized four ways to get married. Important. To our understanding of his position in this chapter, you must see these four ways Rome recognized people to get married. Number one, he referred to in the verse that I called to your attention, slaves. A slave did not have the rights of a citizen. Therefore, the slave owner would allow what they called, quote, tent companionship, end of quote. He could take them apart anytime he wanted. Those people would be removed by the owner anytime that the owner desired. Take one out of the tent. Have you got the picture? With no say on their part, he would just say, that's it. Your tent companionship is over. You are my slaves. You will do what I want you to do. 
Well, this resulted in mixed up backgrounds because many of these slaves became members of the early church. They became converts. They heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. They were to make their marriage everything God meant it to be, even though they had had tent companionship in their former life. That's the first part that Rome recognized, slaves. The second is what was called common law. We are familiar with that term today. After living together for one year, Rome identified them as husband and wife. One year. Now notice, these people also found their way into the kingdom of God and needed the ministry of the early church. And I suspect quite a bunch of them. They too believed the preaching of Paul and others. Here they were now in the family of God, and they had had no legal marriage as far as the church is concerned. They had just been common law recognized by Rome. Now they're saved. The third group, interesting title, by sale, S-A-L-E. A father would merely sell his daughter to the highest bidder. Now, girls, let's thank God for our system. I doubt you would like that system. This was not at all an uncommon practice in the day Paul wrote this letter by sale. The father would get as much as he could get for the sale of his daughter to a man. And the fourth is what is referred to as high level, a dignified, elevated, and noble way to be married. Our ceremonies today come from this pagan background. They would have a matron and a best man. They would join their right hands. Flowers and bouquets were present. Rings were given, remembering that a nerve ran from the fourth finger of the left hand directly to the heart. Did you know that's why your ring is on that hand? After the ceremony, the couple went for a cake. Now we're talking about 2,000 years ago. What could Paul do? He would simply teach the sanctity of marriage now that they were together in the high-level marriages of his time. Well, as you see these four recognized ways of companionship, you would have to say that in many cases marriage had become debased. Immorality, homosexuality, concubines, Feminist rebellion, all were a part of that time. There's nothing new under the sun. Women competed with men. Many became the outdoor type, and few children were being born. Some became wrestlers. History speaks of it. Juvenile wrote, What modesty can you expect in a woman that wears a helmet hates her own sex, and delights in feats of strength. So, what's new, huh? 
What was the result of all of this? Men were discarding their women at will and vice versa. It was incredible. Paul had to face these problems in the church head on. The people were reacting to the conditions around them by saying, the best way out is celibacy. The idea developed that the highest form of Christian life was that of celibacy. To be a celibate, remain single. The result of that concept would be the opinion that marriage should be condemned. So Christians were doing exactly that. They were condemning marriage. They were leaving their married partner for celibacy, believing that was spiritual. Believers with unbelievers were leaving their marriage partner so as not to be tainted. That's why he said what he said about being sanctified. There were those when Paul wrote to Timothy that were forbidding to marry. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. That was the condition. Don't marry. They were teaching that. Forbidding to marry. The apostle the one who wrote this letter called this and other things lies. Chapter 4, 1 Timothy, verse 2, lies. The Roman church position has been that of celibacy for its leaders, speaking of a holy, godly person or a high level of devotion. What Paul relates in the first nine verses answers the celibacy question. Let me just cover it quickly. It is not evil to be single, verse 1. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. We have interpreted touch in some strange ways. When I was in Bible school, I had to play basketball wearing long pants. There was something dreadfully evil about bare legs. And can you remember those segregated hayrides in our youth groups of yesteryear? Paul is pointing out that there is nothing wrong with being single. It is good, but not the only good. In Psalm 68, 6, it says that God setteth the solitary in families. This battled the Jewish mind that said if a Jew had no wife or if the wife had no children, they could not get to heaven. It's the same fallacy of the Mormon church today. But Paul says it's not evil to be single if that's God's calling. We need to accept that. Secondly, singleness can lead to sexual sin. That's the second verse. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let everybody get married. Makes sense, doesn't it? If you can't be a celibate, then God has provided marriage so you can be pure. Every man should have his own wife and every wife her own husband. This would be the norm, according to verse 2. Thirdly, in verse 3, married people should not be celibate. Evidently, folks were getting saved and stopping their sexual activity in marriage thinking now it was sin. The inspiration of Scripture here is that each person owes a debt to the partner. The man is a minister to the wife, 
The wife is a minister to the husband in sexual things. The wife does not have control of her own body. The husband does not have control of his own body. You minister to the other. You are there to take care of the needs of the other. Oh, that we would understand that and obey that and follow that. There would be far less trouble in marriage if that passage of Scripture was understood. We are married to minister to our partner. Express your love in marriage any way you want is what Paul is saying. It's right, it's holy, it's good, there's nothing wrong with it at all. You should say, Amen. Amen. Don't be so wrapped up in knots. The Song of Solomon ought to be read by the church more often. Pretty hard to read it in public, but in private it's fabulous. <laughs> there is no flaw in you. Oh, can you see that on a, on a proper night, two are together. He's just enamored by her perfume and her beauty, and he says, there is no flaw in you. <laughs> Hey, it gets better. <laughs> you have ravaged my heart. <laughs> and she cries as he gives her these lines. I am my beloved and he is mine. Oh, boy. It's in the Bible, Song of Solomon. She says, I am sick with love. Oh, I wish... Oh, let me not even... <laughs> and she goes on, and she declares, He brought me to his banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Just like a huge sign, his banner over me was love. And then it says... His left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Ooh. <laughs> now that's a pretty intimate setting, but it's nice. Too many in our churches are physically frustrated in their marriages. Go back and read the Song of Solomon. Paul is saying that God's design is the marriage partner's duty. It is absolutely wrong for married people to live like celibates. May I be so bold as to say, if you are a married person, living with your companion, and you have not had sex for weeks and months, you are sick. <laughs> there is something wrong. God would not have it to be that way.
Like the old fellow, he's 85, and he married a 25-year-old woman. The doctor said, now, Sam, remember that this marriage could cause heart problems. And he said, well, she'll have to take the chance. If she can't handle it, that's her problem. That's sort of what the Song of Solomon is all about. The fire ought not to go out. And I want to say to you as a pastor who deals with this kind of thing all the time, it's one of the big problems in church marriages, and it needs to be healed. In the marriage union, there should be freedom, and there should be relationship and touching and caring, and it should be often. We would have far less divorce and breakup if it were true. Now, that's what Paul's teaching the church, so I teach it to you. And if you're embarrassed, I'm sorry. It's part of the record, and a pastor has to tell it like it is sometimes. Now, in verse 7, fourthly, he said everyone has his own gift. Some can remain single, others cannot. Being aware of your needs is what is important. Verse 9 simply says, get married. If you cannot be pure being single, then this is not your gift. Get married. Don't jump up and say, that's me, that's not my gift. Just relax and remember God knows where you are. Paul feels that singleness could provide more time for ministry, and that's true. I wish you could be single, verse 32, but it is better to marry than to burn, verse 9. Jesus spoke to this subject in Matthew 19, verse 12. Some were born eunuchs. Others made themselves that way for the kingdom's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it, is the word of Jesus. But not all can receive it. Paul chose to stay single to devote his time to the Lord. Anna the prophetess remained a widow for 84 years in order to serve God with fastings and prayers night and day. Incredible. Why don't we hear more about that? Eighty-four years she chose to be single so that she could pray and seek God night and day. Can you imagine the good that woman did in her life as a single? The point is everyone has his own gift. Find it. Avoid fornication by marrying. Don't burn with sexual desire. Otherwise, serve God in a single state, devoting yourself to his high and holy will. Now next, Paul speaks to the married believers, verses 10 and 11. A Christian does not divorce their companion. Exclamation! Silence helps underscore the point. A Christian does not divorce his companion. Exclamation. Period. If a Christian divorces, they have two options. Verse 11, let her remain unmarried. Verse 11, or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. 
Now, sir, what do you say to that in light of some actions? I don't love her anymore. It has nothing to do with it. She doesn't meet my needs anymore. It has nothing to do with it. The Bible says a Christian does not divorce. The Bible says you remain unmarried. The Bible says, or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. Paul was not dealing with adultery, but with the I want out syndrome, which is a part of our time. No biblical reason, just I want out. God hates divorce. Malachi 2.16 says so. The Jewish tradition of Deuteronomy 24 was to get rid of her for any reason. There was a lot of wife shedding because of misunderstanding of God's way. God allowed divorce but never put his stamp of approval on it. It was a concession to sinful people in the first place. God's illustration for a Christian could be of Hosea the prophet and his attitude toward his prostitute wife, Gomer. Redeem her. The Old Testament recognizes that divorce would happen, but it was only an alternative to execution. That's why God let it go. Better to have divorce than to execute them. Permission became a civil law designed to meet the needs of a sinful people. Genesis is an ideal. A man cleaves unto his wife. The ideal is higher than the law. Let me say it again. The ideal is higher than the law. God allowed divorce because of sinful people. It was never his intent. Never put his stamp of approval on it. He gave it as a concession outside of execution, out of mercy. Jesus holds to the ideal, Matthew 5, 31 and 32, where he makes marriage totally binding except in the case of fornication, sexual sin. Divorce leads to adultery except where fornication is involved. Any kind of unlawful sexual interplay encompasses adultery. Could be man with man, woman with woman, or opposite. Any kind of unlawful sexual interplay. All of this brought the death penalty under the Old Testament standards. Therefore, divorce would be an allowable and remarriage understood. Because <laughs> the companion or the other person would be dead. They would have been put to death by execution. So remarriage wasn't even a question, wasn't even talked about because there was no one around who was involved before. They were dead. See? And a lot of folk haven't figured that out yet. Now, a believer and an unbeliever is the next step. To marry such is forbidden according to 1 Corinthians 7.39. A believer and an unbeliever, forbidden. Only in the Lord is what Paul said. That's God's ideal. You don't go out looking in the bars for a companion. You don't go looking in the world for a companion. You marry in the church. You marry in the faith. You date, young people, Christians, not worldlings. Parents, you don't allow your children to date the world. You don't allow them to date anybody they couldn't marry. 
only in the Lord. Now, don't ask me for an exception. There is not an exception. Don't write me a letter and say, but, there are no buts. Only in the Lord. And if you're going to date somebody, it could be the one you decide to marry. So you date in the faith. It's just the safe way. And it fits the Bible. Evidently, believers were divorcing their unbelieving partners so that they could marry believers. Paul's revelation is, don't. They also felt that physical union with the unbelieving party was defiling. The revelation of the passage is that the unbeliever is sanctified by the believer. We've already touched on that. Even children, verse 14, are sanctified by the presence of a believer in the household. Now, here we get into the next step in terms of where divorce is allowable. If the unbeliever wants to go, verse 15, let him go. Don't fight it. The believer is free to remarry, verse 15. The bondage is broken, for God has called us to peace, verse 16. God does not want fighting and bickering with the unbelieving partner. If that one wants to go, let them go. But it has to be instigated by the unbeliever, not the believer. The unbeliever wants to go. The believer lets them go, for God has called us to peace. Marriage is not an instrument of salvation in itself. Let him go, is what Paul says under the inspiration of the Spirit, but not instigated by the believer. Now, a lot of folk have tried to pull that on me. I have an unbeliever in my house. I want to get out of this. You don't do that. The unbeliever makes the decision, and not with your encouragement. <laughs> now, the next thing is the matter of grace. We believe that there is absolutely no alternative in Scripture for people who claim Jesus is Savior when it comes to the treatment of marriage. God says, stay together. They cannot arbitrarily separate, divorce, and go their own way expecting to have some kind of future with another person. That is not the Lord's way. Some have said to me, I can't believe that it is God's will for us to live like this. Well, they are exactly right. It is not God's will for them to live like that. But neither is it God's will for them to get divorced. So, have you figured it out? Is that too hard to figure out what to do? You get on your knees together and you resolve the problems on your knees. With God's help, you find a solution. Solution is not divorce. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. Say it. Liberty. Doesn't that sound good? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. How applicable to marriage. Believers can experience the freedom and victory that a love touched by Jesus Christ can give. God closed the door on this changing partner's game that people even within the church seem to want to play. But what about those that have not known Christ? That's the big question. The Pharisees who had taken the Sabbath and turned it into bondage picture a trait in the life of the church today. The new creature attitude does not prevail. 
And that's what I want to touch on in the next few moments. It's a big part of this message. 2 Corinthians 5.17 paints the picture of newness in Christ. In my inter in interpretation of this passage, it comes out this way, a brand new life, a whole new beginning. If we say that this does not apply to someone's marital record, then to what other parts of their life are we going to say it does not apply? The gift of God with abundant life opens up to a person that has had the tragedy and the failure of a broken marriage in their past. He's a new creature. A whole new door of possibility opens to him. We have in our church today a couple who came here visiting relatives several years ago, early January. I was preaching a series of messages on the home. This man was very worldly. He was living with this young lady out of wedlock, and they came here to church with their relatives from Southern California visiting. They were very nervous during the service because of the worldliness of this man, feeling he would not like the service and they ought to get out as soon as possible. So when I said, let's pray, the lady who is a member of our church got up and went out, said, I'll get the car and be ready so soon as it's over we'll be ready to go, thinking that would appease this worldly man who had come to church with the girl he was living with out of wedlock. Well, he was into this service. And when the service was over, he went out into the hallway and said, why did you leave early? He wasn't through. Can I get this on tape? Is this message on tape? Well, then they felt convicted that they had done this because obviously God was working. They took the tape back home, sent a letter back for more tapes. Well, they got saved listening to tapes, both of them, and they parted. They moved out, and then they wrote me a letter, and they said, we're going to come to Sacramento. Could you meet with us? We want to get married but we want to get baptized in water first. And they told me the story. They moved apart. Nobody had even counseled them. They just did it because somehow they knew that would be right, having given their lives to Christ. Well, they came up. We met. We baptized them in water. And then I flew to Los Angeles and married them in a wonderful ceremony in Southern California, got them started. And then just a few weeks ago, they moved to Sacramento setting up business here, and they're now part of our church. I can talk about them because this is the last day of their vacation. I don't think they're back yet. <laughs> if they're here, well, that's the way it goes. But it was a beautiful thing, marvelous, powerful demonstration of God's grace. Was I to say to this couple, I'm sorry I can't marry you because there's divorce in the background? No because it all happened before the new life concept. They were dead in trespasses and in sins. They came alive when Christ met them. Now we pick their life up from there. My brother, Marvin, whom you heard on the tape, when he heard this message several years ago, wrote back. See, he gets all of the tapes from here. So he listened to this message on divorce and remarriage, and he said, I loved your story of the couple from Los Angeles. Beautiful. Wanted to shout, praise God, right on. It is so typical of the native folk we have worked with. 
Glenn, he said, if we had to teach what we learned as kids, there isn't one macaw that would have a ghost of a chance in the church of Jesus Christ. They were so messed up in sex tangles that it is difficult at times to figure out who is related to whom. What are you to do when God in his sovereignty reaches down and saves people out of raw heathenism and they on their own start to meet and fellowship and ask for more of the word and teaching? Good question. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 you see, Paul writes to the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, and that is what some of you were, he said to the Corinthians. Ah, that's good. My brother, he's a keen fellow. Picks things up well. Well, this bothered me for years as a pastor. I believe it is cowardice on the part of the church to say to people, tough luck, once you are divorced, you're locked in. That is an unwillingness to lead with patience and love. We are supposed to lead people to what God had in mind for them from the beginning. It is not his desire that anyone should be alone unless it is a gift given to them for the sake of the work of God. The new creature attitude needs to prevail in the church of Jesus Christ. I don't care what you did before you were saved, but I care a whole lot about what you do after you're saved. I will pick you up at the moment of your conversion as a brand new baby. And everything that happened before that is under the blood. It's none of my business. The Lord forgave it, and I forgive it and forget it and move on with you to lead you in the things of God. We must not squeeze out the possibilities of life recovery in people who have had marital misfortune before their conversion experience. God is a God of hope. There is always forgiveness. There is always deliverance in him. Deuteronomy 24 teaches that they do not go back and try to live with the one they used to be with. The Lord meets us where we are. His will is to work out a total healing and to impart strength for life wherever we are. Grace puts the past under the blood. Grace says, start from here, take hold of the moment, and in Jesus Christ, live according to God's ideal. Now, friends, that's an important statement from your pastor because that has not been the traditional position of the church, of this church. But it is now, and it will be, as long as I'm here, and I hope long after I'm gone. It seems to me that if a person is in the kingdom, then they are a member of Christ's body. If they are a member of Christ's body, then they have a place in that body. They have a function in that body. They have a gift in that body. They have a ministry in that body. If we deal in grace without leaving the impression of condoning divorce for just any cause, then Ephesians 4 will become a reality in our churches and in the lives of people. Verse 7 of that passage tells us that unto everyone is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. This leads us to three things, relationships. There is one body, not many, one. Maturity, perfecting of the saints, till we all come 
And thirdly, ministry. It's done for the work of the ministry. And who are these people he's writing to? People who had been in all kinds of sin, but who had been met by Jesus Christ and now pointed by the Lord into areas of service and ministry. Now let me touch on ecclesiastical immorality for a minute. The position of our movement has been that a divorced and remarried person whose former companion is still living cannot serve as a pastor or as a deacon. In most places, they can serve as a Sunday school teacher, a choir member, an usher, a cell leader, or so on. A picture of the problem could be as follows. A church announces that a man who killed five people was sentenced to life imprisonment, found Christ while in prison, marvelously changed, will give his testimony next Sunday in the evening service. The church is packed. Killed five people, but God forgave him. Next Sunday, you announce that Here's a man that had three marriages, divorce, found Jesus, and he's going to tell us his story. Boy, you could shoot a cannon through the place and not hit anybody. Why? Because his sin isn't forgivable in the minds of people. But the guy who killed five people went to prison, got saved in prison. Oh, that's exciting. Let's go and hear that story. Let him write a book, and everybody buys the book. But you see, the fellow who had three marriages before his conversions got leprosy can't touch it. Now, that doesn't make sense, does it? The demands of grace are greater than the demands of law. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, 43 to 45. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That ye may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. There seems to be in the heart of God a great desire that whoever leads in the body of Christ must be the husband of one wife. Does this mean they are written out completely? No. There's ministry to everyone in the body of Christ. But in terms of being an elder, a deacon, there is something that says preserve the image of Christ's church. The leadership should be a clear image of the relationship of the bridegroom to his bride. Is there any variance at all? I believe there is. And it's the 2 Corinthians 5.17 passage. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And I'm fighting on the presbytery for this. We came through a hippie revolution where kids were sleeping with everybody. And many of them found Jesus, were baptized in the ocean or a swimming pool or somewhere. And you know what? Now they've been through our Bible schools and they're appearing before us for credentialing. And you know what our position is as a movement? Sorry. I remember so well a young man sitting before us who said, I can't even remember getting married, but I got married. I was totally bombed out on drugs. I don't even remember. I found Jesus shortly thereafter, came to Bible school, now I want to preach. We had to tell him, sorry, you can't have papers because you've been divorced. Now, friends, that just does not meet my spirit right at all. And I am fighting for that in our movement at the present time, and I'm taking abuse. You pray for me.
I have a hard time saying to these people, I'm sorry we can't use you. It just doesn't ring well. It doesn't sound right. So I'm going to add this third position, see. There is fornication. There is the unbeliever that walks out. And there's the new creature concept. You have to pick them up from where they met Jesus and go from there. Now, if that doesn't fit you well, just let it settle for a while. Because I've gone over this for 100 years, and I'm now comfortable, and I can state it emphatically, and this is going on tape and will go all over the world, and I don't apologize for what I have said. I'm going to skip that section. You can read it in the book. I want to get down to the last thrust. I know many of you are warm, and I don't want to hold you too long. I want to touch on uh, the story in the gospel in John 8. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? The Pharisees did not really realize they were speaking to the one who authored the law and was, in fact, its final interpreter. Wasn't that great? Here is an actual encounter by Jesus with a case of proven adultery. Now, this we ought to study. This was a test by the Pharisees so that they might find some ground for accusing Jesus. His response is classic in verse 7. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He does not lessen the seriousness of adultery by his answer. But we do see how his response to failure is conditioned by grace. What Jesus does stands in contrast with what Jesus says. This seems to be the big transition point where he moves from under the law to the ministry of grace, which was to be the rule in the church age. He who is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. If you think you're better than she is, you throw a stone at her. If not, get out of here. Then the two of them were alone, Jesus and the woman. No one had stood by with a stone in hand. No accusers were left. Jesus tells her simply, yet so powerfully, neither do I condemn you. Go your way from now on. From what? From now on, sin no more. Notice the procedure. He established her guilt by the law. He established the procedure for punishing her. He was the sinless one and had the right to throw the first stone, but he didn't. He was the only one there who had the right to stone her, but he didn't. He released her from the penalty with forgiveness. There was no penalty at all imposed. He stood under the law, but was in the shadow of the cross. He moved with the anticipation of that one sacrifice that would emancipate us from all the consequences of our sins. He would meet every failure on the basis of grace from that time on. His act is that of a redeemer, not of a lawgiver. A line in a book by Dwight Hervey Small says, Let the church be bold in grace. The woman at the well Jesus talked to her about worship, not about divorce, though she had five separations. We need to study Jesus' action. He was the lawgiver, but he operated in his ministry totally by grace. Now, the final practical application. God recognized divorce as a reality, though never did he approve it or put his stamp on it. 
It was a concession to sinful people. It became an alternative to execution. Secondly, divorce for anything less than adultery causes adultery. Deuteronomy 24 and Matthew 5.32 are linked together saying the same thing. Thirdly, originally death dissolved marriage. The Bible assumes remarriage. It is inevitable. The three areas of consideration for a pastor are when divorce occurred before conversion, where there was unlawful sexual experience outside the marriage bond, where an unbeliever walks out on a believer. 1 Corinthians 7.15 says that the believer is not under bondage. Ministers that refuse to marry divorced people literally withhold the blessing of the church from them. These individuals get pushed to the sidelines and are basically ignored. When they come for counseling, they are asked whether there was a former marriage. No questions about love, maturity, spiritual experience, or anything else. If divorce is a sin, since when has the church excluded sinners? We don't. We have to work with them in grace. Now, I had a mother, and I had a father. My father died when I was 12. My mother remained single for six years. I went off to Bible school at that point, six years. I was at school for three months, and several of us, from the same church, 2,300 miles away from home, decided we would ride in one of the fellas' cars, clear across country, straight through for Christmas holiday. Stupid thing to do, but when you're young, you do stupid things. Five of us got into this car, started out from Springfield, Missouri, headed across country. These are all my buddies, my boyhood friends. Grew up together. They never said one thing to me all the way across country about my mother. I arrived home at 3 o'clock in the morning after three days of travel straight. Knocked on the door because I didn't have a key. My mother meet, uh, met me at the door, and before I took two steps inside the house, she showed me the ring finger of her left hand and had a wedding ring on it. I was startled. She walked me back to the bedroom where she used to sleep alone, and I there found in the bed, my mother's bed, my former Sunday school teacher, who had been divorced some years before. My mother and he fell in love. I knew the family. The son was a very good friend of mine, same age. This was the finest Sunday school teacher I had as a boy. Dedicated driver of the Sunday school bus, worker in the church. My stepdad now. Well, I was absolutely stunned. I had no knowledge of this. I'd been away from home. My mother didn't say one word about it to me. And we were close. I went on to bed. I, I just, I couldn't hardly take it in. 
And then I started to put the pieces together. My friends didn't say anything. And you know those fellas all knew that my mother was married because their parents had written them about this terrible thing that had happened in the church. Mrs. Cole became Mrs. Hulo. She married a divorced man. Well, I knew the conditions of his divorce. Boy, I knew them well. She was a demon from hell. Literally broke his nose, took butcher knife after him. I mean, she was possessed. Horrible situation. Everything imaginable. He tried. He, he was a, he, he's, a, he was a, he's a tremendous man, still alive. Well, what, what is this all about? I grew up in this church. I was one of the fair-haired boys. I was the first recipient of a scholarship to Bible school from that church. I played my horn. I sang. I did everything imaginable in that church from way back. I was faithful. The pastor called me in during that Christmas vacation. My dear pastor loved him dearly. He loved me. He said, Glenn, I'm really sorry. He said, I have no control over this. He said, your mother has been dropped from membership in this church. And your stepfather has been dropped from membership in this church. He said, that has no reflection on you. You will maintain your scholarship. You still have your membership. We love you, but there's nothing I can do about it. It's a decision of the elders. Well, you can imagine how I felt. My mother loved that church. My stepdad gave his life in that church. I watched two hurting people trying to piece that together. They kept going to church. They never quit. They kept giving. He kept driving the bus. It's interesting that they wanted him to drive to all the youth retreats, drive through the night, get up early Sunday morning, drive the Sunday school bus, but he couldn't be a member. They never turned down their tithes and offerings, but they couldn't be a member. And my mother, every time a pastoral change would come in that church, would go meet with the pastor and say, Pastor, we'd like to be members. To the day my mother died, she never got back into the membership of that church, something she longed for till the day she died, never got back in. So I lived with that. Now, you can get bitter or you can seek understanding. I sought understanding. I didn't know at that time what I'd be doing. I was 17, just about to turn 18 years of age. But I knew it wasn't right. I knew something was desperately wrong with that whole system. And you know, since some of those who made those rulings have had the same problem. Interesting how that happens, isn't it? So I didn't get bitter. When I got married and brought my beautiful bride to the home church, they didn't have any party for me. They didn't have any reception for me, though I'd grown up in the church, but all my friends, man, they had big bashes. They got piles of gifts. I never got anything. Now you can get bitter or you can seek understanding. I sought understanding. I decided not to get bitter. And I think I found the understanding. 
It comes under the word grace. My mother had every right in the world to get married biblically. The reason she didn't tell me, she was afraid to do it. She was scared to death to write her own son and say, Son, I have fallen in love. You know this man. He's a righteous man. And we are going to be married. And when we, or when you come home, we will have been married a week. She couldn't tell me because of the reproach that was present in the church. I'm here to tell you, friends, that that will not happen at Capital Christian Center. It is not right. I bless my mother to this day for her love for the church. It never waned. It never left her. She remained till she died. My stepfather is still alive. He is serving God faithfully. That man reads the Bible through on his knees. He wears his Bibles out. He prays. He knows God. From Dale Galloway's book, You Can Win With Love, comes this story. With this, I close. Do you like dollies? The little girl asked her house guest. Yes, very much, the man responded. Then I'll show you mine, was the reply. Thereupon she presented one by one a whole family of dolls. And now tell me, the visitor asked, which is your favorite doll? The child hesitated for a moment and then she said, you're quite sure you like dollies, and will you please promise not to smile if I show you my favorite? The man solemnly promised, and the girl hurried from the room. In a moment, she returned with a battered, tattered, dilapidated old doll. Its hair had come off. Its nose was broken. Its cheeks were scratched. An arm and a leg were missing. Well, well, said the visitor, and why do you like this one best? I love her most, said the little girl, because if I don't love her, no one else would. It is possible to speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if we do not move in ministry with love, it profits us nothing. You might say, Pastor, are you compromising you say here is what the bible says emphatically and yet you're saying over here we have grace no the both go together the bible does give us the guidelines but we pick it up with a new creature position and we say from that point on what happens in that life determines the treatment and the word is grace when the woman in adultery met jesus it was grace when the woman at the well met Jesus, it was about worship, not about her failures. And she moved on to ministry. Grace, pardon, forgiveness, acceptance, love. We will not compromise what the Bible says. I have made it clear today to you that a Christian does not divorce. I have made it clear to you that you're supposed to work out your difficulties. Even if your companion cheats on you, try to work it out. That's far better than divorce. It doesn't mean it's over. Be forgiving. 
and work together to build a good marriage. If it's not possible, there is a divorce, then there is a right to remarry. If an unbeliever walks out on a believer, there is a right to remarry. If it is in the Lord, those are emphatic truths we can never change. But if we're going to have murderers give testimony of God's grace, then let's have the divorce give testimonies of God's grace too. And let us receive them and hug them and love them and pray for them and encourage them and counsel them in the Lord. Dr. C.M. Ward said, Jesus realized that throwing stones never corrects problems in regard to the woman caught in adultery. And that is so true. So we're not throwing stones. We've provided a marvelous singles ministry in this church to help people get back on their feet, to point them to Jesus whom they should serve first of all, and then from there we will help them and counsel them and carry them along with grace and mercy and love and understanding. That is our position, and that is the truth, as I understand it, from the Bible on the subject of divorce and remarriage. If you are hurt tonight, be healed in Jesus' name. You've got something in your life that you've never been able to overcome in this area. In Jesus' name, receive healing and receive grace and be in Jesus Christ, forgiven, and in the church, forgiven, and a part of the body. There is not many or numbers of bodies there is one and we're all a part of it by God's grace stand with me please let me remind you that the book is available basically what you've heard tonight I've added a few things of course but basically it's in that book and it can be of help to you and a blessing to you and certainly ministry to others that you may know who need this information. With our heads bowed, no one looking around for a moment, may I ask, are some of you here tonight deeply hurt over relationships, perhaps divorce, perhaps a situation where you're dating and it's just not right according to the Bible and you just don't know what to do, you're confused, in any of this area, you just feel you need God's help, would you like to raise your hand a minute? Just lift it up a moment. Hold it there and let me, let me see just how many there are. Yes, yes, there are, there are quite a number all over this building, quite a number. Friends, I wouldn't want to embarrass you for the moment, but I think you've heard my heart tonight that I love you and this church loves you. And because of that, I'm going to take a bold step. I'm going to ask you to come from where you stand. Stand down here in front. Because I want this whole church to minister to you. I want to reach out to you in love. And I wouldn't want you to hesitate coming. Would you do that? Those of you who raised your hand, just come on down. Stand together as a group. There are many hands. Jesus has forgiveness. He has love. He has pardon. He has strength. No matter what it is, you don't have to tell us your story. I just want you to know you're loved. You're, you're a part of us. and We're glad God has led you to us, every one of you. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. 
There are some deep hurts here, folk. I feel it in my spirit. Some deep hurts. Are you willing to lay them at the feet of Jesus now? Pick up your life and go on. I know it's difficult when you meet Jesus and you try to rectify and change things and there's no cooperation from the others. But God will help you. God will give you strength. God will give you grace. Be patient. And know you have a large body of folk here who love you and care for you and will pray with you at any opportunity. Now, I want people who have walked through some hurts, and you know God, just to kind of form a wall behind these folk for now, a wall of prayer. David Wilkerson called it a wall of fire. I'd like a wall of fire here. Before we go to the reception for the Messners, I want us to minister to these folk, and a lot of you have walked this way and you've been healed. I want you to just surround these folk with your love and your presence, your caring spirit. God bless you for coming. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's sing it slowly just before we pray and begin to minister. <laughs>